lot going on up here you don't even know. Okay, well good morning everyone. Uh, as David said, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Let's get back to it. Um, we're going to take a week off from 2 Corinthians. Uh, I think we landed in a good spot last week. And so uh, we're going to actually have a bit of a Thanksgiving sermon um, through a classic story of the total annihilation of a city. Uh, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Joshua 5. We'll be in kind of 5 and 6 this morning. Um, and while you're turning there, I want to talk about how we get to where we're, we're going to be reading from this morning. A little Old Testament history and hopefully five-ish minutes. It could be more. I don't know. Um, so back, uh, many of you know who Abram is. Um, I'm just going to call him Abraham because we're not going to get into that story. Many of you know who Abraham is. Um, he is called out of Ur, the Chaldeans by God, and, and he's given this promise in, in Genesis 15. He, God promises Abram a couple of things. Now, Abraham and Sarah are uh, barren. They have no kids. And so God promises, not only are you going to have a kid, you're going to have uh, kids that numer- numerous as the sky, uh, the stars in the sky, right? He's out, he's standing outside. He says, look up and see the stars in the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And the whole world will be blessed through your Descendants, And he also promises something else. He promises his people the land, the land that he's standing in. He says, look, you, you will have, your people will have this land, um, and it will be the people's land forever. But he says this in Genesis 15. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So Abraham's descendants wouldn't actually occupy the land for another 400 years. And they would live in the land that wasn't theirs and be servants and be afflicted. So... uh, after Abram, Abram, we know, had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob you know, uh, fooled his dad, tricked his dad, so he got the blessing. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was a guy by the name of Joseph who had a pretty coat. Uh, his brothers hated him, and they sent him uh, into slavery. They sold him into slavery and went down to Egypt. Okay, So Joseph becomes the second most important man in Egypt behind only Pharaoh. Um, and so at some point, that you can read the story, but there's reconciliation. His brothers, there's a famine. His brothers come to buy grain from him. Um, they find out that it is him. And so they, his, eventually they, they get him the food that the whole family, all the brothers and their family, move down to Egypt. And they're, they're in a land called Goshen, and they start to, to multiply and grow. In about uh, 1730 B.C., Egypt is overtaken by a, a people called the Hyksos people. Um, so this new king, this is what he sees. He sees a, a people group who are foreign, who are growing rapidly. Okay, And so this king thinks to himself, one, first off, he didn't know who this Joseph guy was. Two, there's a foreign land who's occupying the land that is also outnumbering his own people. So look, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to put him into an, an slavery. right? So the slavery is used twofold. The slavery builds up the kingdom, the buildings and all the things that are they're making the empire, but it also is a way to oppress them to slow down the growth of this people. Okay, so uh, many years later, there's a guy. So this slavery goes on for 300-ish years. Okay, so then eventually a guy by the name of Moses is born. He's an Israelite that 
uh, ends up in Pharaoh's daughter's uh, care, and he grows up. He kills an uh, Egyptian. Is sent. He goes away to a place called Midian. That's where God has this burning bush uh, experience. Moses has this burning bush experience with God. He says, "Take off your shoes, for this ground is holy." And God tells him, "You're going to go back. I've heard finally. I've heard the voice of my." people, their affliction, and so I'm going to act. And so he goes, Moses goes back, and uh, that's the plagues, the nine plagues, and the tenth plague, he says this. He says, look, um, I'm going to send an angel to, to go through and kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, and the only way to have that not happen to you is to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And when you do that, the angel will pass over your house. Okay, and then the, he gives him this meal to, to have that it's a fast meal. The reason they do it is because they're going to be moving quickly. And so they, they, it's the unleavened bread and it's this Passover meal that they're given. And so that happens. The angel comes, kills all the firstborn in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh says, get out. The Israelites leave. That's the whole you know, Red Sea experience. On the way out, they, they take all of the, the people of Egypt, say go, and they give them all of their treasure all of their stuff and so they leave the land a wealthy people uh, then they have the red sea they they get a right up back up to the land all right the land of uh, of canaan where they're going to go and right they send in 12 spies uh, because moses wants to know okay well you know are the people big are they small do they live in tents do they live in cities like what's the land like is it fertile is it barren like what is what's going on so they send the spies in the spies come back with a report man it is a land of milk and honey it is hugely, uh, you know, vast with produce. Uh, they bring these you know, bunches of grapes back, but they say, look, the, the cities are fortified. The people are giants. Their, their walls reach to the skies, right? So there's no way we can attack them. And of course, Caleb says, no, we, we should and can attack them, but they decide not to. And God says, you know what? I'm done with this generation. Okay, I'm, I'm, for the next 40 years, you're gonna wander until this generation dies off and it will be the next generation that ends up going into the land. And so that happens. And so right about 40 years later, or 39-ish years later, Moses dies. The power of command is given to Joshua. And Joshua leads the men from the southern tip of Canaan up around the eastern side. Okay, They defeat a town called Sion and Og, and they're right on the eastern banks of the Jordan River. So um, Joshua, being a military commander, sends spies again. Now, this is 39 years, 40 years later, but he sends spies again, and he particularly wants to see uh, the city of Jericho because that is the, the city that is fortified that is uh, protecting the eastern side of Canaan. And he sends the people, uh, a couple of spies in. They meet a girl by the name of Rahab, who's a prostitute, but invites them into their home. They stay there and hides them and actually tells them, look, the people, God knows, I mean, our people know what your God did 40 years ago with the crossing of the Red Sea, how he parted the Red Sea and you guys crossed on dry land and destroyed the Egyptians. And we know what you guys just did to Sihon and, and Og. And so we, our people are scared. Okay, so we know, I know that God has given you this city. Just please remember me and my family when you take it. And so they say, look, have this scarf hanging out of your window. We will not destroy, make sure all your family's in there. And don't tell anybody, and we, you will live when we conquer the city. So they go back and uh, report everything to Joshua. And, and they say, look, it's, yeah, the truly, this is what it says. It says, truly the Lord has given us all the land into our hands. 
And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So they're set to conquer the land. But this entire people group have to get across the Jordan River. And so God tells them, Take your, get the priest, get the ark, and go walk towards the Jordan. And as soon as they put their foot in the Jordan River, way up river at a place called Adam, the river stops flowing. And so the, the, the water's current pushes the waters away. They walk across on dry land, and now they are into the land of Canaan. They celebrate the Passover meal 40 years later to the day. 40 years later, they celebrate the Passover meal. And as soon as they celebrate the Passover meal, the next day the manna stops, right? Because they're in the land of milk and honey. Okay, so they're ready. They're ready to conquer Jericho. Now, Joshua is ready to do what he came here to do. He's a, he's a strong military leader. He's out one morning. He looks at the city and he says, you know, uh, you know he's, just, he's, he's trying to figure out, you know, a military plan. And he sees a guy. He sees a man standing there with a sword. Okay, so obviously Joshua walks up to him and he says, hey, are you, are you uh, for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or against us? And the guy's response is, no. Right? It's like, what? No, are you for us or against us? No. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So Joshua falls on his face and worships him and asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the man says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Okay, so who is this guy? Who is this man standing there with the sword? It doesn't say he's an angel, but he's a man and he's the commander of the Lord's army. And now, because he is standing there, the ground is holy. Right? This is a pre-incarnate Jesus. And he said, now I've come. Come for what? Well, this is, get back to the history, right? Genesis 15, 16 says, Listen, you, your people can't go to the land because the sin of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorite people have not reached its full measure. Well, guess what? Now it has. It, 400 years later, it has, and God has come to judge. God has come to judge this people. Okay, so then the orders of the conquest are given. In Joshua 6.2, let's start there and read this. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up. Everyone straight before him. So for six days, these men of war are going to walk around the city quietly, not to make a noise, and follow the ark. And on the seventh day, they're going to walk around seven times. And when they do, the, the priest will blow a horn. And when they, the priest blows the horn, there will be a shout, and the walls will fall down flat. So do, they do exactly that. And on the seventh day, when they march and blow the horns and shout, uh, the great wall falls down. And the Israelites take the city, burn it, and thus began the conquest of Jericho and then the conquest of the land of Canaan. So, what does this history, what does this story have to do with Thanksgiving? 
Good question. I actually think there are four things in this story, four things in the story uh, that we that should bring us into a posture of thankfulness to God for what he has done and what he continues to do. First, I think we should be thankful for a God who's patient with sinners. We should be thankful for a God who is patient with sinners. When we look at the story, we can't view it by itself. We have to view it in light of the whole Bible in mind up to this point. This is why I wanted to go back and, and talk about this, because we have to go back to Genesis 15, where it talks about, you know, your descendants cannot enter the land right now because the sin, the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. It's not as bad as it's going to get for them. Like their sin is going to get worse before I will deal with it and judge them. And this is really pretty amazing because we know that the time remaining is 400 years because God says that. So this is a God who dwells in unapproachable light, who is completely holy and sacred, and yet he is allowing, he is patient with these Amorite sinners. He's so patient that he even allows his chosen people to be enslaved for 300-ish years before he will finally act and judge the Egyptians for their treatment of the Israelites. Right? So let this sink in. Maybe, just maybe, suffering isn't always about the people suffering. Right? Maybe suffering's not always about us. And I know we talk about, I in particular talk about counseling and suffering a lot around here. Um, but I want us to really get the biblical understanding of suffering. Our suffering usually isn't about us at all. Is it used to transform us and change us? Yes, absolutely. But there's usually something else or someone else in mind as well. Not only that, I have to believe that 400 years prior when God is talking to Abram uh, in this land, he has a girl by the name of Rahab in mind. A prostitute who would make her living that way, who would ch- change her allegiance. Change her allegiance from whatever God she was worshiping at the time, whether it's herself or some other you know, temple God. At some point, she hears about this God, Yahweh, and that the Israelites follow him, and she changes her allegiance. So much so that she helps the Israelites and, and desires to see them succeed. And so now she's changed her allegiance to follow Yahweh, which is a sign of belief, especially in the Old Testament. Allegiance is, is everything. And Joshua 6.25 even says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived, with, uh, lived within Israel to this day. And she followed them. She was with them. She stayed in the land with the Israelites. So the details are important. We're going to talk a lot about details here in a little while, but the details of this story are important. The, the, the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. They come, the spies come into the land and talk to this girl, Rahab. She says, look, I'm for you. I'm not against you. Please save us when you, con- when you conquer the city. The next morning, maybe, maybe a day or two later, Joshua goes out and he sees Jesus. Jesus says, okay, it's time. <clears throat> okay, just like that. This, there's a girl who is going to be saved, and he is patient with her uh, to come to believe, to meet the Israelites, to... to uh, come to this understanding of Yahweh. So, Jesus shows up for, for judgment on the people, and this is not by accident. God is patient with sinners. 
Now, the patient has a limit. We cannot continue to sin against God and ignore his son forever. However, God was and is patient with us as we're being changed. And he's patiently waiting for all who will believe to come to belief before Christ returns. Just like the Israelites, we are sojourners in a world that although he loves us, he is willing to allow his people to suffer in this world as he waits for time to play out and for all who will come to belief to come to belief. But the good news is he's given us the scriptures and instructions for how to interact in this world, how to deal with, with living in, in, in a sinful world, in a world that is tainted by sin. This is one of the reasons that we value being devoted to the scriptures so heavily and so highly because it only makes sense in light of how, uh, and in light of how God has designed it that we are enduring and how we're enduring during this time where God is, is being patient with us and being patient with those who will come to belief. This leads to my next point, right? So if God is patient with sinners and he's given us these scriptures, then I think we should be thankful for a God who reveals himself through all of this, the, the all-sufficient, all-reliable, all-true Bible. Every detail in the scripture is important. Now I want to spend a few minutes talking about this story in particular, about how uh, the amazing details from this story that, that have been proven historically, been proven archaeologically, been proven scientifically accurate by studying the land itself because the land is a part of the promise. Remember that. So let's start with the crossing of the Jordan. Okay, Crossing a river is hard. I don't know how often you've crossed rivers. It's usually not easy. Um, it's especially not easy when it's at flood stage. Okay, We know from Joshua 3.15 that the conquest was during the time of harvest. And the time of harvest, the, the Jordan over, it says the Jordan always overflows its bank during the harvest time. Okay, so crossing the river, again, is hard enough, but if it's overflowing its banks, it's even harder. Yet God makes a way. As soon as the priest's feet touch the water, it stops flowing. And then when they're in the land, they, they celebrate Passover. Okay, so then they celebrate the Passover. Each, each of these Jewish festivals uh, throughout the year have an agricultural component to it, and this was a, a grain festival. Passover is a grain festival, and, and the grain associated with the Passover in particular is barley. Just put that in the back of your brain because that's important. Now, conquering a city, I don't know if you've ever done it, but that is also hard enough. Okay, and guess what? In that time, it's even harder at the time of harvest, right? Why? Well, because the people have harvested the grain and they're inside their protected walls and they've got all their grain ready to go. And if you lay siege to that city, eventually you're going to run out of food. But they're not because they've got grain. They're, they're good. Right? The best time to attack a city is actually before the harvest. They don't have their food. They're not ready inside the walls of that city. And eventually they're going to run out while your army is sitting outside, you know, harvesting their grain, making your eating bread, doing that thing. Right? So, the two worst times to attack, to cross a river and to attack a city are during the times in which God said, you need to do it this way. Now, let's talk about the wall. Because everybody knows about the city of Jericho, what happens, the walls fall down, right? So, before Jericho, before the, even probably sometime in the time where the Israelites were in Egypt... Uh, what you would have is these cities with these walls around the city. They'd be just brick walls, and there's a, a, an invention 
that happened in history. It's called the battering ram. And so they would come and they would batter these walls, these cities. They'd make a hole. People would come in and just take the cities. Okay? Well, by the time that Moses uh, sends in his spies, they've changed the way they build the cities. Now they have what they do, these embankment walls at the bottom. So they, put, they build a wall, but then they fill what's behind them with dirt. Okay, so when they hit it with a battering ram, it doesn't go anywhere. And then they build even higher walls, the red clay brick walls, on top of that wall. Okay, so when the Israelites go into the city, or you know, the spies go into Canaan and they go, wow, the walls, they reach to the sky. It's because there's a huge embankment wall with dirt behind it. And then on top of that, there's another thick red brick wall that they would even build so thick that they would build housing into, which is why Rahab lived in the wall. Okay? So... And, and let, let's not forget, Joshua and his men were ready to take this city. Okay, they weren't scared of the height of the wall. They, they had just destroyed Sihon and Og so bad that, you know, the people inside the wall were scared. Okay, but the marching orders became different, right? And, and so when they marched around the wall, they knew, they knew what it was. They were ready to take it, but they were going to trust the Lord's uh, direction. Uh, so they obey the commands of, of God, march, and the walls fall flat. You know, archaeologists have been studying Jericho for a while, secular archaeologists, people who don't believe anything that we're talking about today. And they all have found the same thing. All right, let me tell you what they found. They found the wall. Right? They have found this wall. So if you go to Jericho today... Uh, you'll see the embankment wall that's about, you know, depending on where you are, certain height. And then right a few feet below that, right along the surface of the dirt, you see the tops of this red clay brick, right? And if, if you take a cross-section, they've done this. If you, you know, basically cut the land in half and open it up, what you find is the, this red clay brick that fell down flat, fell down on itself. And if something falls down on itself, what happens? It starts to pile in the, in the middle height and it goes down like this. So if you take the cross-section of that land, what you see is red clay brick that runs like this. Okay? It makes a ramp. It makes a ramp. And so that you can see in Joshua 6.20, they shouted, the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Fell down flat actually says fell down under itself. It's how it used to say it fell. It just fell on top of itself. And it made a big pile, and so the embankment wall is on this side, so it all piles this way, and they just run right up and take the city. You can't make this stuff up. You can go there and see it today. Now, in terms of the city, it was devoted to destruction. So they took the gold, the silver, the bronze, that stuff. They put it in the, the, the temple treasury for the Lord. But then they set fire to the rest of the city, killed everything. Now, as these archaeologists have uncovered this city, they found something very interesting. They found rooms, and inside these rooms, they found jars, okay, jars of burnt grain, okay? And as they have studied this burnt grain, do you know what kind of grain they found? Barley. Barley. Not to mention the length of time of the siege, right? They found jars that were full of grain. Now, we know how long the siege was, don't we? Seven days. It was seven days. So it was during the time of harvest. They had these full grain. It wasn't a long siege. It was seven days. And so what they have found is actually biblically accurate. They have found these jars that are full of grain because it was a very short siege. You see, there's no detail that is 
insignificant in these historical stories because they all matter. Because they all bring glory to God and allow us to trust the scriptures more and more. Whether it's you know, dealing with suffering that comes from living a sinful world or salvation itself, it's all there. It's all accurate. Um, you know, we, we learn about God through the scriptures, through what he gives us, and through his interaction with, with his, his people in history. And we can study those things, and we can trust the scriptures more and more. So we can be thankful that we have these scriptures to study and to learn from. Thirdly, we can be thankful for a God who sovereignly fights on behalf of his people. We can be thankful for a God who sovereignly fights on behalf of his people. When God told Abraham it would be 400 years before the Israelites uh, came to occupy the land, he also knew all of the history that would happen during that time. He knew the Israelites would complain to the point of being punished so that this new generation would go in right, and occupy the land. He knew that that he would bring the Israelites to the walls of Jericho at the worst possible time, crossing the river at the worst possible time, and he did it to show the Israelites that it was him who was doing this, not them. Right? He made the walls fall down on themselves so people could walk up into the city and take it. This was an amazing display of his sovereign power and control and judgment, and it was Jesus who gave the marching orders. In fact, I have to believe that Jesus was standing there you know, somewhere in a distance, sword drawn, watching this whole thing unfold. And we've heard about this, the, the trumpets and the shouting and, uh, and the shouts that, you know, we hear the stories, we've seen the flannel graph, right? And they shout and the walls come and tumbling down, right? But if the details are important, the shouting and the trumpets were important too. Okay, these things were not just the means by which the walls fall. These things were a, a symbol of arrival. Okay, these things were a symbol of arrival. Trumpets symbolized the arrival of a king, and to some it would mean victory, and to others it would mean judgment. Blowing the trumpets around Jericho are to announce the arrival of the king and judgment upon the land. The trumpets and the shouting together represent a future time when this same event will happen in a completely different context. Look at first Thess- well, I'm just going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise. The Lord will descend with a shout and with trumpets. The king will arrive with a shout and trumpets. There is no detail that is insignificant in these stories. When Christ returns for his people, it will be with a shout and a trumpet blast. And so why is this important for us? Why should we be thankful? Well, God has given us a task. We're to live a life pleasing and glorifying to God as we enter into his good works that he's prepared for us. And that's just a biblical way of saying, love God, obey his commands, and love people. Sometimes life is hard. So, and we encounter some of the whiplash that occurs from living in a sinful and broken world. You know, our, our, our families gets out of control. Our spouse, you know, we're just not communicating well. Our jobs are tough. Our, our people get sick. You know, these things happen. I mean, we, we, Sonia and I went out of town this weekend, and we were at this, up in Asheville, and, and it was like, it was, it just felt dark. You know, and I know yeah, Asheville, it's where hippies go to die. I get it, you know, but, but it felt angry, right? This world is becoming more and more godless. 
Okay, the whip, the, the 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 repercussions of a sinful, broken world are growing. Okay, so we we long to hear the trumpet blast. We want to hear the trumpet blast, but it's not time. It's not time, and so we endure, and we know that during that our duration until the Lord decides to return, we endure and hold tightly to the promises that God is fighting on behalf of His people. Okay, and sometimes there's there's big victory. Sometimes there's Jericho. And sometimes there's defeat or God's allowance of, of oppression in our life for a long time. And yet he is faithful. He has not forgotten. John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Mm-hmm. So God is working and fighting on behalf of his people, even when it seems like he isn't. It's in those times we can turn to stories like these from the scripture that bring us hope. And finally, we can be thankful for a God who gave up his son for his people. We can be thankful for a God who gave up his son for his people. In a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a meal that we take together that symbolizes uh, and celebrates the Passover, right? For our Passover lamb. Christ came, right? He created everything. He came uh, you know, it's funny because in the story like Jericho, you see, you know, what, you, what we call, you know, warrior Jesus, right? The commander of the Lord's army. And, and someday, in, in, at the end of time, he will come back as warrior Jesus, sword drawn, ready for judgment, ready to take his people. But in between that time, he came not as a warrior, right? But as a baby and as a man, he, he added uh, humanity to his deity so that that we, so he could suffer in our place, die in our place, you know, shed his blood. This lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, shed his blood, right? So that when judgment comes, the Lord will pass over. And in fact, this word Passover is very interesting because the illusion, it is, it is Passover, pass by. But the illusion throughout scripture that is used, it actually also has this, this feeling of cover over during judgment. Right, so think of how this actually works better. The lamb, the blood of the lamb covers the people as judgment rains down. Right? This again is no detail that is insignificant, no accident. This is truth. And Jesus came and he died so that we could live. We could live now and we can live in eternity with him. This is the promise. And the Bible is full of details and promises and details of promises that continue to be shown more and more true through things like science and archaeology and history. Right? That, you know, we, especially the land, which is so interesting. So all the more we, we can trust and know that God is who he says he is and he will return for us someday as he said he would do. And so we want to be found ready. Um, if you're passing out the elements, you guys can go ahead and do that. I don't know who's doing that today. Um, so we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and remember our Passover lamb who took our punishment so that we might live with him for eternity. Right? We want to celebrate that together as a church, as the bride, as a body of, of, and bride of Christ. And be thankful. 
You know, because none of Jericho uh, fighting on behalf of his people, being patient with sinners, none of that happens without Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't happen. And so we want to be thankful for that this morning and celebrate that together. The guys will pass out the elements and we'll take it together in just a few minutes. So let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our time. God, I thank you that you have been so patient with us and been patient with sinners throughout history, that you are faithful to the things that you say you're going to do, that you have given us your word that is true and accurate and able to be believed fully. It says that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness, and we have those in the scriptures and the knowledge of you that you have given to us. And so the knowledge that is most valuable, God, I pray that you help us to take to heart this morning is that Christ came and lived and died as a man so that we might live with you forever. And so, God, I just pray for this church. I pray for our time um, over the next few minutes to, to help people to remember Christ and that you would be glorified in what we do through this time together, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.